your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Saul has now been privately anointed as king and publicly proclaimed and installed as Israel's first king. But the people's demand to have their own king actually broke their covenant vow with the one true king. In chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord said, They have rejected me from being king over them. We've seen in chapters 8, 9, and 10 how all this played out. And it is very interesting and very sobering. God acquiesced and granted Israel's demand for a king. Even though they were actually rejecting him as king in this particular demand. So the people get what they wanted, but they will find out over and over again that the demand God granted is really a form of judgment or discipline upon them. In other words, God didn't so much provide a king as he gave the people over to their own sin and its consequences. Saul, their first king, would never be the king. And through even more failure and consequences, God will demonstrate their desperate need for his son to come as the Messiah king. At the end of chapter 10, all the people of Israel do renew the covenant of the kingdom which means that they renewed their allegiance and fidelity to the rule of God in this kingdom under the reign of Saul. What we see in chapter 12 is an address. And if you look, some of your Bibles may say farewell address. And you think, well, wait a minute. Samuel's not going anywhere exactly yet. But it is an address And with the new king installed, Samuel's career as the last judge of the period of the judges is coming to an end. And he's still going to be on the scene, on the scene big time as God's prophet. With the authority to bring God's word to who? To the king and to the people. And he will address the people again and anoint another king after Saul. And he'll do that as God's prophet. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It's only 25 verses. 1 Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you've said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? 
Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hands. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you both and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. 
And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think the only thing we can say after reading that chapter is, wow. This is probably one of the most powerful statements in 25 verses about who God is and who his people are in the whole Bible. This is powerful. Think of some of the great leaders of the Bible and how important their parting words were. Moses' final words to Israel are found in Deuteronomy 33. And after he spoke them, he climbed to the top of Mount Nebo so the Lord could let him see the promised land, which he was not allowed to enter, and that he died. Joshua's parting word to Israel included a well-known passage and verse that probably everyone in here has heard in Joshua twenty-four fifteen: Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What about Paul? Paul's parting words to the elders of the Ephesian church are found in Acts 20. And there he reminded them of what true ministry really is and warned them of the dangers to their own flock. But of course, the most important parting words were Jesus's to his disciples, um, in particular at the Last Supper. Every gospel has some account of this, but John has chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16 on this whole event. It's incredible. There Jesus emphasized and he called their attention to what was about to happen even though they were still pretty clueless. And he gave instructions to guide them in their future service as apostles. Samuel is preparing to hand over the leadership of Israel to this new king. And as we read, he's old and gray And he is no longer the judge of Israel since this kingship has begun. So it's in this sense that this is a farewell address. But what a powerful address it is. 
What's the point of Samuel's farewell address? We just read it. What is it? What is the point that he was making as God's judge, which he presents here as his prophet? It's pretty simple, is it not? It's that the people would finally recognize and repent of their wicked desire to have a king like every other nation around them, which God says was actually rejecting him as their king. Now I want to point this out right here at the beginning. We may come back to it. But as I read that, did you notice as he went through the history that he recounted the time of the Exodus, the time of the Judges, and then right then, and then right then when they were hearing him speak. First time they cried out to the Lord, and God sent Moses and Aaron to deliver them. Then during the period of the Judges, he says they cried out to the Lord. And he gave them judges to deliver them. And then we read, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, and you said to me, No. We want a king like everybody else. Did they cry out to the Lord? No. And then this whole thing happens, and he's talking to them here, And what do they cry out? And all the people in verse 19 said to Samuel, Pray for yourselves. Pray for your servants. They're crying out to Samuel. They're so fearful of what they have done that they cry out to Samuel to intercede for them. Do you see this? This is the flow of this whole chapter. And we must keep that in mind as we go through it. I think most of us can look at our own history, personal history, maybe corporate history. I don't know at all. When stuff got really bad, do we cry out to the Lord? Has there been times when instead of crying out to the Lord, we said no and demanded something? So we're going to look at Samuel's address by dividing it into three sections. And there's a lot of ground to cover in each section, but it's really not too complicated. Here in this chapter, in section one, what we see going on at the first, which may be a little bit confusing, and I'll try to explain it clearly, is we see a trial in a courtroom. It's a case against Israel. Next, we see the fear that comes upon Israel in verses 16 through 19. And then, lastly, we see the grace of God over his people. Isn't that how it usually goes? Trial, fear, grace. So in section 1... 
Samuel is speaking as God's prophet, and he presents a trial in a courtroom setting. And all of us are going, no, wait a minute. Because first, he's the first defendant. He's on the stand as a defendant. And what is he doing? Well, this trial against Israel comes in three parts here. Three parts. The first section has three parts. Samuel is the first defendant. He takes the stand and he defends his ministry. Which, if you notice, Moses, Joshua, and even Jesus recounted his ministry. That's one of the things that you see happening. You're going, okay, why... Why are all these guys, and Paul did this as well, the first thing they do is put themselves up in front of everybody, obviously God first and foremost, and they say, what did I do wrong? If I have done anything, tell me, I'll return it. If I've stolen anything, if I've taken any bribes, etc., etc. And that's what Samuel is doing here. Um... And if you're wondering why, just remember what were the leaders like that Samuel replaced. Eli had raised him in many respects. There was so much good there. But he was also lazy. He did not discipline his sons. And evil came upon them in so many horrendous ways because of his wicked sons who were priests. So... That's the contrast that he's trying to draw. We've had so many wicked leaders. I'm putting myself out there. God has put me in place. Am I guilty? There had been so much wicked exploitation of leadership offices, which is also a hot topic in our day. It always has been. It always will be. That God put his faithful prophet, on the stand to validate Samuel's faithfulness before the people because he is one of them and Israel is on trial here. Now, was he proven faithful? Yes. He even brought God in as a witness. The people said, he is our witness. We're testifying you have done nothing but lead us faithfully. Well, that's going to add some oomph to his prosecution, which picks up in the very next verse of of Israel's unfaithfulness. So through all the questions that he raises in verse 3 about his leadership as their judge, the people said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. His ministry is vindicated and God attested as a witness Samuel then changes from defendant. He goes from defendant in the chair, and what does he become next? Prosecutor, and that's what God's prophet, that was their main role. Do you guys realize that? The prophets of the Old Testament, one of their main functions was to function as God's prophet. Prophet, God's prosecutor. So the second part of this section one, in God's stead, as his his prophet, Samuel brings God's case against Israel in verses 6 through 12. 
And all he does is recount their history. Now, therefore, in verse 7, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. Do you, do you get the tone of him? He's saying he's pleading with them, and his heart is that they would recognize the, serious of the seriousness of their sin and repent of it. Samuel reviews their history. How many times do we see this happen in the Old Testament? It's constant. Remember, 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 remember. And the point is that he's trying to show how full their history is of God's faithfulness. You didn't think I was going to say that, did you? This is the prosecution You thought we would say first and foremost of your wickedness and rebellion. That's what we do as humans. What he's trying to get them to see is, yes, their responsibility, but he's trying to show how God has been faithful to them every time. That's the point. He highlights the Exodus deliverance and then the period of the judges And he ends with the most recent of the Lord's deliverances from Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And there is a recurrent cycle that I went over at first of crying out for help and deliverance that is heard in each example. When oppressed by the Egyptians, we read, Your fathers cried out to the Lord. When oppressed by Sisera and The Philistines and the king of Moab, they cried out to the Lord. But mostly, most recently, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. What a contrast. When the Lord your God was your king. And we've got to ask this question. Yes, God has given us responsibilities in a land governed by the people in a representative form of government to do whatever we can or cause us to. But who's our faith really in? The only answer is to cry out to the Lord, ultimate answer is to cry out to the Lord for his deliverance, to cry out to the Lord for him to change the hearts of the people. They didn't cry out to the Lord. They demanded a king. And he gave them what they wanted. Wow, the case against the people couldn't be much clearer, could it? But Samuel doesn't stop. He goes on to the third and last part of this trial. Samuel shows God's acquiescence and what the alternatives are. As we've already learned, God gave them what they demanded, a king. He acquiesced. But in doing so, he gave the people over to their own sin and its consequences. And the Lord, because he is almighty God and we can't figure out how he does this, He would now work in this context 
especially in making them aware of their own desperate need for the coming Messiah and King. And if there's anybody in here who thinks you don't have to learn those things the hard way, I think you're mistaken. I think we all have to learn the hard way. The alternatives are spelled out in verses 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This is all going on at the beginning of the kings of Israel. And if you have any Old Testament knowledge at all, you know that there's a handful of kings that you can say were faithful. This is the first of many lessons, but man, this one comes across powerfully because it's the initial message as it starts. Okay, we get to section two of this address and we see the fear that comes upon Israel. Samuel now shifts into an even more powerful gear, you might say. At God's behest, he is the prophet. He's speaking what God wants him to speak. And immediately he uses a visual aid and a demonstration to really get these points across. Why? If any of you have ever taught anything to anybody, you know if you care about your message, you are looking out at the people you are teaching, and you're going, they're all dead. These days, it's, they've all got their cell phones out. Nobody's paying attention. They could care less what anybody is saying. Samuel knew this was a very important message. And he was led by God to give a visual aid that they could not ignore that God does every once in a while. What was it? Well, I hope you notice that as he's talking here, with these ifs, in verse 16, it's, he doesn't take a breath. It's immediate. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing. Why does he do it like that? Because also, if you've ever taught and you've tried to get across something and your desire is for people to see the truth about themselves and repent, as an example... You don't take a breath. Because you know if you take a breath, they'll just zone out even more. So this is an immediate thing. Immediate. And you get that with the word now. By the way, each of these sections, now, that word appears uh, to, to show you where it starts getting serious in each of these three sections. 
Now, therefore. Now. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. And then we read this weird verse, 17. Is it not wheat harvest today? Well, in May through June is wheat harvest, and it didn't rain. Almost never rained. It was dry season. We should understand that. That sets the stage for what he's going to do, which is sin what must have been a humongous, powerful thunderstorm, which we also know a lot about around here. And he did this to get the point across. The people have no time to even take a breath and offer any more lame excuses. He's a true prophet, preaching God's word, and so now this is going to happen. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. But the interesting part is the next sentence. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Do you get what he is saying? We see this phrase over and over and over again in the Bible. In fact, I colored them all in the book of Exodus just because every time... One of the plagues happened. God says somewhere in the passage, I'm doing this that they may know that I am God Almighty. You can just hear him thundering this, whatever it was. And it happens over and over and over again. That you may know that I am who I say I am. This is one of those times. There is no doubt. There's no TV shows after this going, well, we don't know if God really cares about those people that that storm hit. You know, and then people get up and try to explain God away and and cover for him because somehow he messed up and he's not showing his love to everyone. What we're seeing here is there is no doubt in anybody's mind in this whole nation that what just happened could happen to them just like that if he wanted to. So all of a sudden, Samuel's message to them, they saw it. They saw it crystal clear. We have done the most wicked of all evils in not not trusting God. Because he has been faithful to us all through our history. Even when it doesn't seem like it, he is being faithful. But he has demonstrated it. So powerfully here. Has he not? They were so distraught for offending their great almighty and holy God that they cried out this time to Samuel to pray to the Lord on their behalf. Have you ever been there? Oh, 
how the Lord loves his own so much that he does what he needs to do to open the eyes of our hearts. He is relentless. If it helps, think of some other Old Testament examples. Jonah would be a great one. True repentance is beautiful, especially when we realize in our own hearts what God did to get through to us. And that just humbles us more so that we realize how great he is even more. And it just builds and builds and builds. And now, in verses 20 through 25, Samuel ends his address in this last section, section 3, that we've called where we see the grace of God over his people. And we need to ask this. What does God do with his people when they have committed spiritual disaster when they have charted their own course in what is, when stripped of all its camouflage, nothing less than rebellion. What does God say to his people when they have apparently come to really see how ugly their sin really is? Make it personal. What does God do with you when you have committed spiritual disaster? And you finally get to that point where you see how ugly that is. And you shout out to him or you cry or you wither, going before him, pleading for him to deliver you, to forgive you. What does he do? What does he say? What does it say in the text? He says, Don't be afraid. What? How can he do that? Somebody read this passage before you put in the prayer request about justice and mercy. How can he show mercy and be just? Duh. He showed his justice against Christ, his own son. It was what we deserved. He took it in my place. That's why grace is amazing. He says, don't be afraid. You have done all this evil yet. There's a yet in there. And there's a future and a hope. Now, obviously, I shouldn't have to say this, but he is not saying here, oh, I'm not saying you take your sin lightly. Oh, excuse me, but when this demonstration, nobody was taking their sin lightly right here. (laughs) Their life was just flashing before their eyes in this demonstration of God's almighty power through the voice of his prophet, Samuel. Dale Ralph Davis comments this and it's so 
so, so important. You don't go back and wallow in your guilt or relive the tragic mistake, that big one that has soured your life over and over and over again. You don't make yourself miserable by bathing your mind in the memory of your rebellion. Because some people actually gain some solace in doing that. It makes them feel like that they're actually paying for their sin themselves. We're all kind of maybe addicted to that in some degree. You don't punch the replay button going over the whole messy episode in lurid and precise detail as though such misery makes atonement. No, you go forward in basic, simple fidelity to the Lord from that point on. Isn't that what verse 24 says? You ever wonder why only is at the first part of this verse? Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. That should be on every evangelical fellowship, church, member, or attender on your refrigerator through the holidays. No. That, but it would be a good place if it can get in your head. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. See, we see the amazing grace of God for His covenant people whom He has chosen and called to Himself. How do we know that? Because he says in verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake. Why do those go together? Because if you belong to him, you have his name. He has bought you with the price of his son's blood. And then look how that verse finishes. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. We could ask, which part of this passage do you need to hear today? Do you need the conviction of sin? Do you need the fear of God to get you to repent? (laughs) Do you need the grace to go forward after being wallowing in whatever forever and ever and never really applying Christ's blood to your whole situation and not believing that you have been freed and not believing that his blood has covered all your sin. It's probably all three at once. We see Samuel, don't do we not, mirroring God's faithfulness, because look how he ends here. He reassures the people that he will never cease praying for them because it would be sin. That kind of blew me away at the end of this chapter. Speaking for God, and yet he just steps out of it and says, I will never cease praying for you all instructing them in the good and right way of God's word. That is a leader in the church who is faithful. Those who would pray for you, 
who know you and they'll pray for you. And some of you understand what I'm saying there. And also instructing them in the good and right way of God's word. That's what we do with one another. This passage illustrates a dual emphasis, does it not, about the lives that we live on earth? You must see the great evil of your own heart. That's what verses 16 through 19 really emphasize. You must see it. If you're arguing with God about how you're not really that bad, you you still got an issue. And God works on this your whole life, so don't worry. And yet you must see the Lord's great steadfast love in verses 20 through 25. And the key is that only the latter, God's great steadfast love, can keep you from despair over the former. So if you are living in a life of despair, then what you need to major on in your scripture reading and in your prayers is emphasizing God's steadfast love. And if you're so excited about being his child that you don't care about obeying him anymore, then you need to go back and read verses 15 through 19 to be convinced that your heart is evil. Most of us go like this as we grow. We go back and forth, back and forth. But it is comforting to know that in a congregation that God called together in his name to worship him, that we will help each other as we grow in this walk. Yeah, it's tough getting to know other people well enough to know what to pray for. That's called body life. It's only, it's not only by God's grace alone that we become God's people. I'm sure we realize after this chapter that it's by grace alone that we remain his people. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which obviously speaks directly, directly to what this passage is about. This is the physical way. Again, this is a a demonstration that we can handle, touch, taste, smell. Um of the joy that we have as God's people to know him and have him in our lives and the reverence that we're privileged to give him as we live our lives as his own possession and the faith that we can by his grace put in him every day we could be seen in Christ because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life that's demanded of us. So, 
First we'll sing, and then we'll continue. <laughs>